Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah, and this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today we are talking with Zoe Arnold. Zoe is an outdoor educator with Wilderness Fresh Air Learning based in Saskatoon. Zoe shares about risky play, using tools, supporting outdoor education, and garden education. Well, Zoe, thanks for joining us today. It's nice to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you've been an outdoor educator for a number of years and in numerous places. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey to be an outdoor educator? Sure. Um, well, I graduated from a biology degree in 2011 and wasn't quite sure that the field biology and conservation work that I was doing in my internship immediately after really suited me. I kind of felt a little lonely with just me and my clipboard and the plants. So um, I looked for something else and I ended up in a park interpreter job in Manitoba um, doing education programs out at Grand Beach Provincial Park. And then uh, shortly after that, I got an opportunity to move to the UK uh, and was looking for kind of something along those lines. I really enjoyed doing the public education. I really enjoyed uh, you know, getting people excited about what they were seeing in their natural spaces. And so when I moved to the UK, I just kind of started looking all over the place and I was connected with this lovely little uh, ecology center in Greenwich and started there on a, a very short-term contract. I think my, my contract initially was about six weeks and uh, I ended up staying on for almost two years and got a chance to do my four school training there and uh, work in four schools there and coordinate a lot of their programming. Um, so then when I came back to Canada after that, I was, you know, really jazzed about four schools. I think I, you know, met and talked to both of you at that point and was really trying to extend my networks and, and you know, get in touch with more people um, in that sphere of, of outdoor education. And uh, that led me to do a, a B.Ed. program in Ontario in Kingston in the Queen's Outdoor Education Program. Um, so I did that in 2017 and then moved back here and have kind of been an outdoor educator in Saskatoon ever since. Uh, you mentioned uh, taking your forest school training in the UK. Did you know about forest school prior to moving there? I think like I had seen, you know, these little videos running around social media of kids in the forest in Norway. Um, so I had kind of had a bit of a, a sense of that idea of a you know an outdoor preschool or an outdoor program, but I, I don't think I'd heard the term forest school um, before I started working for the outdoor education center in Greenwich, and they had a forest school program um, there, and so that was yeah I think that was when I, I first heard that term and kind of got a little bit more sense of of what that was meaning in a, a UK context. Sasko uh, Doors has been promoting forest schools, I guess, or supporting forest school educators in the last couple of years. Uh, and you know, that that's the Child and Nature Alliance of Canada. Do you know anything about the differences or similarities between those 
trainings and programs? I think only from what I've observed and what I've, you know, sort of chatted with with folks who've been through the the Child and Nature Alliance training versus those colleagues that I had that have done the UK training. Um, and I did like I did a practicum at Child and Nature Alliance in the Ottawa Forest and Nature School. I spent a month there um, as part of my outdoor education degree. Um, and so I did get a chance to kind of see some of you know their approach, um, which was really interesting and, and an awesome opportunity. Um, and I think like what I what I've really boiled it down to my observation that I've really noticed, and I think I've I've seen a little bit of change even in the last year of of this too, but I noticed in the UK when we were talking about forest schools and, you know, planning the activities, it was often very focused in on bushcraft and tool use. And a lot of my training was about that. And so, you know, the training we did, we actually had to go back, we did our five day intensive, and then we had to go back and do a skills session where you had to show different skills as an outdoor educator of, you know, how you can light fires in a couple of different ways and how you can hang tarps in a couple of different ways. And um, I think some of that is captured in, in the portfolio things that I've understood that uh, CNAC has. Um, but I also really noticed when I came back to Canada that I think the emphasis in forest schools on play is a lot heavier in Canada than what I saw in the UK. Um, but I also think that play has kind of moved forward in education. And so, you know, I left the UK in 2015. So I don't know that my, my observation is still incredibly accurate. It's possibly uh, the case that that is, you know, being emphasized more because I think there's been a, a really big forward push in play um, in the last several years as well. So, I mean, that's an observation I've made. I, I don't know that I have any concrete um, data to back that up. I think it would be cool for somebody to study that and, you know, figure out, you know, what exactly are the differences in perceptions. Um, I think the other thing that I, I noticed, and I think is, again, like you said, Leah, with the support from Sasco Doors and other organizations and CNAC doing all the work that they're doing to, to advocate as well as others. Um, I think it's important, you know, to reflect that the UK sort of has a four school movement that's a couple decades old now. And when I was there, even at the time, it's it we were still attending things and conferences called growing forest schools and you know developing this movement. And so it was still seen as sort of a fledgling fledgling movement. But I think what I noticed noticed was going into schools and talking with teachers and principals, there was a common understanding of what a forest school was and what that looked like. And I don't really find that same case here. I find I do a lot more explaining of, of what that means. And um, often the first impression folks seem to get in these parts is, you know, it's a forestry degree or it's, you know, about cutting down trees and being an arborist and that sort of thing. And <laughs> that's not exactly what we're, we're talking about at all. So um, yeah, I think just the, the sort of social awareness is is higher was higher in the UK when I was there, certainly. And you do a lot of work with kids around, like I think we used the term a couple of times. I think in the podcast, but like risky play, and when and when you create risky play environments for them. Um, but what part is the most challenging for you when you are trying to create these environments? Like what comes easily to you? I think what comes the easiest to me is actually just doing it, like being with the kids and, and seeing their capabilities. I think, um, yeah, I think I, I sort of try to frame it as, you know, a risky play event sort of happens between me and the child and the child and the environment um, and the child and their own ability as well. So like I can never, 
I, I've been asked sometimes to, you know, look at a picture of a tree or a picture of a site and tell us, you know, is this safe for my child to climb? And like, I cannot answer that. That's not a question that I can answer because I don't know what the child's abilities are, Fair don't enough. know the conditions of the site and that sort of thing. So I think like a lot of that comes easy is just, you know, being with the kids and observing and responding. I think the things that come harder are ex sometimes explaining the value, I guess, um, to maybe more risk averse teachers, principals, parents, concerned citizens that walk by, um, <laughs> you know, there, there, <laughs> there certainly uh, is a desire and a need to protect children. And that's absolutely, we, we, we need to protect children. We want to protect children. And I think I try to frame risky play as a way to protect children because we are teaching them to risk assess and teaching them to manage their, their bodies and their environments to be safer. Um, and I think if you can kind of swing it all the way back around to safety, it, it really helps. Do you have any examples of how you've seen risky play change a child? I think it, it's what I've seen is it's, it doesn't change them all at once. It sort of changes gradually over time. And so I can think about, you know, a child that um, the first time we climb to the top of the big hill and we're going to go down the slippery slide in the wintertime, I uh, wanted to hold my hand the whole way and, and can we slide down together? And, you know, it's, it's not like we go down one time and then suddenly they're, they're eager and ready to go again. Um, but I think what, you know, the beautiful part of, of a four school approach when we're kind of coming back every week for a, a period of time, then those incremental changes. And, you know, you can see at the end of the season, they're the first one to run to the top of the hill and slide down belly first, like a penguin, maybe even. And, um, so I think, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of those gradual changes. I don't think I have like a big aha example. It's, it's sort of looking at the whole development of a child throughout their time, um, mm. in the program. When there's a huge level of trust to what you do too, like not only from kid and an instructor, but like parents as well, I imagine maybe have a tough time getting, or maybe the parents that come and bring their kids out to it are already down with the idea of, of outdoor education. But I imagine there must be some conversations you have to have. Like to yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I, I do think that because our program is a, you know, parents seek it out and register their children for it. I think uh, that's largely the programming that I work in. And I think, you know, generally the kids that do come to those programs, their parents have kind of already bought in, in a sense, and, and have an idea of that. Um, when I worked in the UK at the center, it was, uh, more of like a, it was, they call it a curricular service. So it's sort of, uh, similar to, you know, like a, a center that a school board would take their, their class out to regularly. So, we would do four schools for a class of kids who it isn't necessarily the parents that have chosen to send them, but their school has. And so um, I ran into a lot when I taught there of uh, kids saying, oh, don't tell my mom I'm up this tree. She'll be so mad at me, um, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that in that sense, I did find it a lot more challenging because in that environment, there's even another layer that separates me from the parent. Like I'm probably not actually going to meet your parent to, to tell them that you were climbing the tree. So, um, you know, your teacher has brought you here as, as a field trip um, sort of opportunity. So yeah, I certainly have encountered some of those, those barriers and, and ideas about, about risk before. Um, yeah. And there's some conversations to be had certainly. I have, I've had an experience with risky play with a group where, 
other some children were trying to do what other children were doing. So you talked about the sort of incremental steps of developing more confidence and skills. Uh, do you have any advice that you could give me as a facilitator or just in general about um, how to, so I had this little person who really wanted to, you know, climb that was not maybe climb beyond his capabilities at that time because he saw other kids doing it. And I found that was a, an interesting situation to mm. navigate. I wonder if you have any thoughts or have experienced that yourself. What um, was it that they were climbing? Like what was the activity? It was climbing a, a branch. It was maybe three feet off the ground and then it went horizontal. So it was. Um, and it was, was it like their balance or they just couldn't reach or they. They were smaller and younger. Right. And so they just, they just really wanted to be able to do it. Uh, right. When they saw and, another kid do it. Okay. And was there like frustration that they weren't able to do it? Yeah. They I I really wanted me to lift him up there. And I can I say, no, like you need to, you can climb as, as much as you're comfortable and you feel safe and confident yeah. and uh, but really was pushing himself yeah that is definitely challenging i think it's super common right that sort of observation and and role modeling and following that's a lot of what human behavior is i think we mirror each other a lot and and a lot of kids will will start with observational play and and then try to to emulate their peers um i think in those instances yeah i i like i have an absolute firm um policy with my groups. I don't lift kids up. I don't lift them down. Um, if you get up, you're going to get down. I'll, I'll sit there and I'll support you and make sure that you feel safe. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to deliberately allow you to get hurt. I will, I will step in. Um, but I, my kids know that pretty early on, um, that I won't lift them. Uh, some of the things that I say that sometimes help are, you know, maybe your body needs to grow a little taller, uh, maybe you need to practice um, a few times. Can we find like a log balancing on the ground that you could stand on instead to practice and build those skills? Um, sometimes, I mean, it really depends on the situation. The one I think about is there's a big rock at the, the uh, park that I teach at a lot and lots of kids can climb that. Lots of kids are not able to. And so they've come up with lots of really interesting ideas and there's lots of like, um, peer-to-peer -peer helping so they'll teach them about you know taking a run at it and sometimes that helps them some sometimes it doesn't um i have had kids like pull each other up with a rope before which i was okay with in that instance might not be okay for the exact circumstance that you're talking about um so i'll let them you know sort of do peer-to-peer -peer helping but yeah i i generally have a a don't lift them policy as well because i think it's it doesn't teach safety. It, te it teaches that I'm a safety net and I do want to be a safety net. I do want to, to help you, but I, I also don't want it to be uh, like early on in my forest school journey. I didn't lift the child up. They climbed up themselves and then I was standing quite close to, to where they were on the rock and they jumped into my arms because they thought I would catch them. And so I've learned that I, I don't stand within that distance because I think that's really unsafe, right? And luckily it was a really small child and I did catch them, but it could have been an injury for me and an injury for them. So, mm -hmm. yeah. What a, like you're with Wilderness Oak right now, you guys are running summer camps and you're going to be going into your fall programming, which goes September to December, right? Yeah. And is it for all ages or is there kind of an age group that you target for? for yeah, it, it depends on the programming. Um, we do half day programming for 
three to five in the morning and five to eight in the afternoons right now for the summer camps. Um, in the fall, we yeah, add sort of in that range for our half day programming. And then we also have been running after school programs for school age kids. So that's six to 12. Um, but we've run programming for older kids before. Uh, we've run preschool and even nature baby programs before. So we kind of tried to uh, take the approach of, of going where we're needed. And so if, if folks ask us to develop something, we will we will try our best to, to do that. Um, and yeah, so those are the programs we're offering right now. But it is, yeah, it is a really nice mix of ages. I've really enjoyed the the spectrum of, of being able to work with different kids in different ages. Mm-hmm. Do you ever find that you, I mean, you, when you talk about running these different programs throughout the day, you are a constant in all that. So the kids might be only there for a few hours, but you're there for a huge chunk of time. Do you find that in your spare time, do you, do you hang out at Gabriel Dumont park or around me <laughs> Watson, or do you, do you shut things off for a bit? And how do you no, I, I do. I think I, I sometimes have to have a boundary when it's hot to just knowing that my body needs to be inside for a little while or to jump in the pool or have a cold shower or something like that. That's the one I struggle with the most, but I, yeah, I certainly do. I, I cross country ski around Diefenbaker all the time and I go to Gabriel Dumont to pick berries I like going for walks down Miwasan. So um, I do have to kind of catch myself sometimes of not um, scouting while I'm enjoying my leisure time. (laughs) Sometimes you're like, oh, that would be a really cool spot to visit. Maybe we'll go check that out. Like, nope, got to make sure you have some some space. That's the inner educator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right now we are in the heat of summer, as we were discussing before we started recording. Um, we don't know this podcast will come out sometime in the fall, but we were wanted to hear a bit more about how your teaching outdoors changes as the seasons change. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I find usually the winter season is the most active. Um, I think just because we have to be moving like when it's that cold, we have to be jumping, sliding, walking, rolling. Um, just to keep our body heat up. So yeah, I generally find that winter is a big shift to really physical play uh, and fall and spring are maybe a little bit more about like creating and art, more art space, looking closely, looking at insects and looking at the seasonal changes and things. Um, Mud is obviously a big one in the the shoulder seasons too. Um, Yeah. I think that would be kind of my my note is that the winter is just a lot more active and physical. Mm-hmm. I'm, I always get a few emails each year about people who are just starting off in outdoor education and they want tips for for how to get things going or how, maybe how to slowly include their class, getting introduce their class to getting outside a bit more. What would be some of what would be some of your top tips for for people who are just kind of starting to explore this field? Mm-hmm. I think just go outside just go for a walk, like walk around the school. If you feel uncomfortable, just stick to what you know first. Um, I think it's really important to not feel like you need any specialized training or you need to know the names of all the plants or all the birds and that sort of thing. I think it's more important to just get outside. And there's so many different ways that you can take outdoor education. Um, in one of my four schools, we you know did a bit of like an urban tour and walked across the bridges and talked about how the bridges were made. And you know it's not necessarily in a natural space, but it, it was really 
it was a really cool learning opportunity and it it helped the kids to feel really connected to their city and and to feel proud that they you know had walked across the bridge by themselves and and had that opportunity so i think you know it doesn't have to be anything big it doesn't have to be spectacular it doesn't have to be building structures or quincy or lighting a fire or something that you maybe don't feel comfortable doing but yeah just just start i think very cool I always like to tell people, I think sometimes there's this idea that you have to go places to right to do outdoor yeah. ed. Um, and the value of nearby nature and you exploring and spending time in the places that are near where you are makes it mm -hmm. a lot more accessible and, and equally as valuable as those grandiose trips. Totally. I think um, that was one of the things that I, I feel like I took away from my time in the UK because for part of my role there, my job was to be like an outreach worker. And so I would go to schools and uh, look at their outdoor space and give them ideas on on what they could do, and it just was really eye opening to me. Uh, you know, in a place like London and in these boroughs where it's so built up and the apartment buildings—that's where most of the kids are coming from—and uh, you know, they'd show me their outdoor space, and in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, this is only marginally bigger than the backyard that I grew up in uh, for this entire school, and so I think that it really changed my perspective on how we can do outdoor education. And there are ways that you can use that small space and you can bring, like, don't be afraid to bring things in if you feel like you want to bring in sticks or bring in leaves or bring in what you don't have in that space. Um, so I found that really eye-opening and I think it really changed my perspective on where we can teach outdoor education. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is pretty wild. And I mean, people even in Toronto and larger mm -hmm. you know, cities in Canada, it makes you appreciate Saskatchewan in a pretty different mm -hmm. way, too. And not, and I think you brought it up earlier too, teach talking about, you know, just being around at sidewalks or going around to even paved places. Outdoor education isn't always environmental education. You know, there, I, I watched a video you did uh, with Wildernook where you were teaching, I think you were using, you were doing measurements and you were using sticks to um, you know, find out how the perimeters and do measurements through math and things like that. And I mean, you don't need sticks. You can do, you were using picnic tables. You were using just anything you guys could find. And yeah, that's the way, like you said, get out and do things, go for a walk and then look for these sort of resources too. I mean, that's a great video. I think to, for someone to not feel so it kind of, it takes away some of the um, like kind of shock value, or maybe it, it helps them plan for it a lot better but just by seeing some of those resources, even if it's a three minute video of what you were doing. Mm -hmm. I really liked it. I really enjoyed that lesson. The kids um, loved it as well. well. They were engaged. Yeah. 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 That was fun. For people who haven't seen the video, can you tell us a bit about what you were doing? Yeah, that was in the grade three. We did a grade three, four outdoors program uh, that started in fall of 2020, sort of as we were getting lots of messages about, you know, parents wanting to have an outdoor option rather than just online school, which was was sort of the, the case at the time. So we did we did a grade three, four program and we did weekly lessons. And so that one in particular, uh, we tried to cover lots of areas of the curriculum and just, you know, build in social opportunities. And that one in particular was a math outcome. Uh, and it was looking at reference. So you're, you're looking at, you know, a measurement like a stick and knowing that my stick is 10 centimeters so that I can measure five sticks and know that my object is 50 centimeters long. Um, but I only have to count five sticks of length. So we were measuring our sticks and then we were modifying them, uh, using pruners and saws, which 
maybe maybe that adds a little shock value with the tool use, but you certainly don't have to. You could try to find sticks that were already that length um, or just break them. And uh, yeah, and then the students were measuring, we had them measure the length of the picnic table, the distance to the path. Um, they came up with lots of different things to measure the length of their arms and that kind of thing. So it was a really, yeah, it was a really nice lesson. I really enjoyed doing that. Where, what are some of your favorite resources for coming up with these ideas? Do you just, do they pop into your head and you bring them to reality mm -hmm. or do you have used other already established resources? A bit of a mix. Um, that one popped into my head as we were reading the curriculum. I was reading about reference and you know, what is a reference? And we were thinking like, oh, sticks are a perfect reference. So um, that came out of, of mine and Claire's sort of brainstorming and planning session. And uh, yeah, other resources. Um, I have a number of books that I just like to flip through and I don't always take something like verbatim from a book, but I maybe will modify it. Um, so I have one of my favorite ones is called Dirty Teaching. Uh, it's by Juliet Robertson. She's a UK-based practitioner and she also runs a blog, which is really helpful. I can't remember the blog, I think it might be Creative Star Learning. Uh, she also has one called Messy Maths, so Dirty Teaching and Messy Maths. Those are probably the ones I reach to the most. Um, but then I also have, you know, I'm just looking at my bookshelf over here. <laughs> I have, uh, yeah, like things to do with the stick. I have more school activities. I have, nature encyclopedia i have like i just i pick up a lot of books and um just kind of flip through them when i'm looking for inspiration and then of course i i love the project wild and below zero um books as well i i look for those a lot too flip through those and we'll use, sometimes i'll use a portion of an activity or a full activity for even for a four school i think it can be a good intro to a topic i feel like um like you're a great resource too, and folks like you that are doing this sort of work. I feel like that's something that our public school divisions and public Catholic or public school in general in Saskatchewan, um, I feel like that's something that we're missing out on is bringing in experts to do professional development on these sort of things. And I mean, it's it's fantastic that you that we have a resource like you in Saskatoon. Um, but you know, this is these even conversations like this. It, you just rattled off eight resources that people can go and look up and vlogs and, and things like that. And a huge part of learning how to do this is talking to people um, who have experience doing it. And I think, I think divisions need to open up more to the idea of bringing in people like you um, and Leah probably uh, and, and, you know, making that an available resource to people. Cause it's daunting. I think the first two years I taught my outdoor school or my outdoor program, I wouldn't even call it an outdoor program. I call it, a, it's a climate change program that we go outdoors quite a bit, but I, like, I, I was just, I was like flailing for the first two years until I just started. I, I did what you just did there, what you were talking about Zoe, just getting into the curriculum a lot more and being like, okay, well, look, I can just sit down with a friend and think about this for a bit, mm -hmm. but it I took me two years of screwing up. I could have just had you come in and said, you know, two things, and then we can figure that out. That's where I blame, you know, that's where I think the division can do a lot more, I, I think, in supporting this kind of education. Well, I, I certainly don't want to sell myself as an expert. I am also still learning and also screw up lots and, and make mistakes and reflect on things that I wish I would have done better. Um, but thanks, that was nice of you to say. <laughs> so can we loop back? You mentioned using saws. Uh, few minutes ago and we wanted to hear about some of the tools that you use in your programs um, and how you use them and 
kind of that whole world of tool use with children? Sure. Um, one of my favorite tools to start with is one that I think kind of looks scary because it's about the size of the kids um, is like long handle lockers or pruners. Um, so I'm thinking of the ones with the kind of curved blade on the end and they have sort of a, you, you know, a half foot and a half or two foot long handle. Um, and I like those because they can be used as a team. They keep children very, very far away from the cutting blade and it's very intuitive. It's like a big pair of scissors. So that's usually the one that I like to start with um, because it's, it's also exciting. And I think, uh, you know, we can, we've cut sticks lengths and made rafts and then gone and set them free on the river. And that's a really fun, um, way to kind of introduce that, that tool. So that's usually the one I, I like to start with. And I've used that with kids as young as three. Um, we have, you know, safety around that. Like you can never lop something off above your head. I hope that's common sense. You don't want that branch to fall on your head. Um, so we find, you know, sticks and, and fallen branches and things that are uh, usually about the size of a, or the width of a pencil or so, um, and use those loppers to start with. So I really like those. And then you can kind of move from those to like a handheld set of pruners that is more like a pair of scissors. Um, I do find that a lot of really young kids don't have the grip strength for that. And so that's also why I like that, you know, longer pair that has that um, additional force from the, the length of the handle. Um, so those are two. Uh, saws are really a good option as well. I like a, a bow saw because you can use it in a, a, um, a team with two people. And so one of the people could be the adult as needed um, or two kids. And it can be a good option for um, sometimes we'll make little like wood cookie coins and, and make name tags or uh, draw faces on them or something like that. It can be kind of a fun activity. And I think, you know, with any tool use it just like it builds so much confidence and it, it um, I find sometimes it, maybe it seems counterintuitive, but it really settles the group. If I have a really active group that are kind of bouncing off the walls and we bring in a tool and we, you know, sort of talk about the tool and they see that it's sort of an adult thing and it, it feels important and it feels big and it feels like a big special day that we get to use this tool for um, our idea and our plan that it really brings the energy to like a very focused place. Um, so that is really a really cool thing about, you know, something like a saw. Um, and then, yeah, knives I also use. I really like the um, knives that Sask Outdoors has in their equipment lending library. I used those most recently a week ago. Um, so those are the Mora, the Mora knives, the Swedish knives that have a fixed, a fixed blade. I don't prefer folding knives with kids. I feel like that uh, it can be really challenging for them to fold and unfold them. And sometimes they end up with their fingers in between the folding part. Um, it's not to say that you can't, but there is a little bit of extra teaching that has to happen there. Um, so I really like the fixed blade knives and the ones that Sask Outdoors have also have the finger guard, which is sort of the little extra lip of plastic on the handle of the knife that prevents your fingers from sliding up onto the blade, um, which is really nice. Mora also makes a type that have the blunted tip. So sometimes the tip of the knife is, is the one that causes the most uh, injury or, or, you know, um, so you can get ones that have a a blunted tip and that isn't like just an additional kind of safety level but you don't have to have that there's still ways to to use them safely um yes yeah, so those are the knives i like and <laughs> i went on a little rant about them but 
so I'll use, yeah, we'll use knives for usually for a purpose. So, you know, this past week we um, made bannock over the fire. So we used the knives to strip the bark off and clean the sticks off. Um, a lot of the kids had ideas about uh, what they wanted to make. And so we kind of helped those ideas come through. Um, some kids even used, you know, multiple tools to make their idea come, come to life, which was really neat. And with any tool, I, uh, always designate either a tool zone or, um, a tool area. Sometimes we might even use like a rope or a set of cones to kind of mark that off as this is the tool space. Um, but on occasion, like if everyone is sort of wanting to use tools, then we might just have like a bit of a, a boundary around activities that can happen. So if we're using tools right now, then sliding and running are not are off the table. Um, we can't have that in the same area. So yeah, it, it sort of depends on if it's, you know, one or two wanting to use it, then maybe we just have a bit of a zone off to the side. If it's a larger group wanting to, to work with tools, then we can, you know, make some boundaries around that. Uh, we have practice and we look at how to walk safely with each different tool, how to set it down and where to set it down, um, whether it needs to go in its case or it needs to be set on a table or leaned up in a specific area. We want to, of course, avoid, you know, any tools being left out anywhere. Um, yeah. What, what do you notice in the, you mentioned that the energy can change as you're talking about tools do you notice any sort of incremental changes like we talked about with risky play with tool use? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, once once they see sort of what the tool is and how to use it, they have big ideas. And I think, um, you know, in this past week, I did an outdoor skills camp. And one of the things I thought was so cool was uh, this has never happened before where a child has said, you know, I've used all these tools before and I have this idea and I want to make a mallet. And so they had this like design plan in their head and they knew they needed um, the knives and the saw and the hatchet and, um, all these different ways to make it. And they had this plan already and they didn't even really need me other than to, you know, hold the, I think I held on to something while they whacked it. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's neat to see sometimes two kids who've been through other programs and then come to us that have these ideas of how to use the tools. So I think that would be what I've seen with tools is, is sort of the developed confidence and then the, uh, design ideas, I guess, of, of what we can do now that we know how to use this tool to modify. Yeah, I mean, risky play, it's neat that you're, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about it a lot more too. It's 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 a risk for for the educator a bit more too, isn't it? It's, you know, it's an, it's an extra layer, of, an extra level of of teaching you have to do and, and kind of foresight that you have to use for a lot of things. So you're at your idea yeah. of like gradually moving from that's that, you know, the clippers to the saws, to the, to the knives. It's, it's a neat, yeah. Mm -hmm. Scaffolding as they say. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to, like you said, like as the educator, you should feel comfortable. Like if you've not really used a knife to whittle, I don't think I would recommend you teaching it until you've sort of had that experience yourself. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's important to feel comfortable and then with what you just said, like kind of circling back to it is a risk for the educator. I think that's true. But I also think that uh, with lots of types of risky play, like risk is in the eye of the child more so and the benefit is in the child. So like if we think about like a type of risky play would be playing at a height and, you know, I can count how many times a child has said, look at me, look how high I am. And I look and they're sort of two feet off the ground, like sort of bear <laughs> hugging the tree. Right. And so I think 
it doesn't like minimize what they've done. That's an awesome accomplishment. Look how strong your body is. Um, and you know, that, that risk has been accomplished in the eye of, of the person. But I think sometimes when we hear the word risky play, we get a little bit hesitant. And I think it can also just be child level and child level risks. Whereas, you know, we might think of, of tools as maybe on the higher, higher spectrum of risks. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. That was a great example. I also think about the, a type of risky play about getting lost and that, you know, as the educator, you always know where they are, but they yeah. feel like they are lost or they, they could get lost. Yes. Yes. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. It's not like doing a novel study where you can like stay a chapter ahead of the kids. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just have whittled something the night before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you have previously worked in garden education. Uh, how can educators use gardens to teach? Mm. Just say, I would say in the same way, get out, get out there, um, get out there often and notice the changes because your vegetables will surprise you and sometimes change even in the course of a morning to an evening. Um, yeah, get out there lots, look at the pollinators, look at the way the flowers are forming, watch how the little vegetables are coming about. Um, I worked with Chap Good Food in the Aski Project for four years, working with youth aged 15 to 20, and it surprised me so often the number of times that I would have comments like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, a pepper would flower before it made the pepper. Um, and so I'm just not even, you know, f- sort of following the life cycle of the plant, I guess. And, and I think that's, you know, it doesn't represent any sort of um, failing on the part of that person. It's just a, a lack of exposure, I think. Um, so if we can be, be those people who expose, uh, expose children to gardens and expose children to how, how food is grown, that's really exciting. Um, yeah, get out there. Don't worry about it being perfect and looking like a picture perfect garden. If something isn't working, if your plants are looking sad, you usually always have time to rip it out and try something else. Um, don't be afraid of that. <laughs> uh, seeds are pretty inexpensive. So it's, it's uh, yeah, that's a good, a good way to start. What are your favorite things to grow in a school garden? Hmm. Pollinator plants. I think there's a lot of education there and they're perennial often. So they, uh, are low maintenance once established. So I think that's a good place to start. And there's so many amazing people in the, in the city and the province to reach out to. Um, Elizabeth Bacoli comes to mind with her designs in like in nature um, among others. And, and one, she does the one school and farm project as well. Um, so the, yeah, perennial plants and pollinator plants for sure. Uh, I also think vegetables is really fun um, with kids because there's a, you know, a tasting element and, and so things like cucumbers, carrots, things that kids like to eat already um, can be really fun, as well as things that they maybe haven't tried, like purple tomatoes or beets or uh, something like that can be really fun as well. Yeah, we have a garden at our school and we do a fall, we do a fall supper all together and then the rest yes. we give to, to the community members, which is great. But we just got awesome. bees this last year, which has been uh, fun to, to navigate as well over the summer. So I have not, I've only done one lesson with kids cause I was afraid I had, I had never be kept before. So nice. I learned over the summer, but yeah, this next yes. year should be pretty good. That is an excellent example of risky play. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was hard to get approval. I think they're yeah, really worried about kids getting yeah. stung. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
Zoe, one of the questions we ask everyone is where is your favorite place to visit in Saskatchewan? I thought this was a really hard question. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was doing my degree in Ontario, really talking up Saskatchewan to all the Toronto folk that I was in school with who sort of cast us aside as the flat province when they've driven across on the boring number one highway. Um, anyway, so I thought about it a lot and I was trying to think of uh, a place and I eventually settled on the Miwasan Valley in Saskatoon, um, specifically in the north end of the city. And I think it's because I grew up in that area and I love to go and see it in the fall in particular when all the trees are changing and it just feels, uh, yeah, like a reminder of my childhood and like home, I think. So that's what I decided to say. But it was great a really, hard, really, really hard question. <laughs> lots of great places in this province. It's a lot of great places. Yeah. The other question we ask all of our guests, Zoe, is if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? This is also a very challenging question uh, that I don't feel equipped to answer. But I, I decided on um, I would change... I would make whatever changes were necessary to make sure that all children felt safe and accepted and celebrated in who they are. That's pretty cool. Be a pretty different world, eh? That'd be great. Mm -hmm. Zoe, we've talked a little bit about Wildernook in this interview. Can you give us a summary of what the experience is like? So uh, Wildernook Fresh Air Learning operates based in Saskatoon, but operates um, anywhere in the province that we're asked to be. And we provide uh, nature experiences to hook people on the outdoors and to try to foster connections that they feel to the space around them, um, often utilizing nearby nature. Uh, we have trained teachers on staff who you know, can facilitate curricular as well as for school or play and adventure-based um, programming. And it's a really wonderful organization to work for. I really feel very fortunate to uh, work where I do. And if people want to find out more about Wildernook, how could they do that? They could visit our website at wildernook.com or check us out on social media. We are at Wildernook um, across all social media. And we also have the Punch Buggy Express, which is only operating in Saskatoon right now, um, but is a children's pedal bus that is operated by Pedal Power and has 10 seats that folks can take a tour down uh, the Maywasan Trail all the way from the Wonder Hub um, along to the Reme and River Landing. So it's a pretty exciting way to experience um, the river and the Miwasan Trail in a different way. I heard you guys are going to get a canopy for next year, eh? Yes, we're hoping so. <laughs> <laughs> Plus 34 temperatures will do that, but it sounds yeah. like it was a great time. Yeah, yeah, it's very fun. Great. Thanks for joining us this evening, Zoe. We enjoyed our conversation and your experience and insight on outdoor education and forest school and risky play. I think there are lots of people who will be quite interested in this conversation. Mike, are there any actions you're going to take after having this conversation with Zoe? Yeah, I think I'm going to be approaching um, my administrative team and the central downtown team of my school division to get more professional development in outdoor education going, because I think it's just such, uh, it's a, it, even talking to Zoe and just her listing off resources and things like that. That's something that needs to be a part of 
of every school and have that resource available to every school. Not that it has to be Zoe all the time, but people like Zoe. Uh, Leah, what was your big takeaway from the conversation with Zoe? I really enjoyed when she told us about her tool use. I work with kids of sort of all ages outdoors, and I really appreciated the how she's hearing about how she scaffolds the tool use and the, the teamwork of using those big loppers uh, was really appealing to me. And just the, the logistics of how you're then far away from the sharp part of the tool. And so I think that that's something that I'm definitely interested in learning more about and perhaps integrating into some of my programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's lots of value with it in, in like all age groups, not just yes. in little ones. Yeah. Yeah. And then the progression of using different tools and, Something I really like about outdoor education is the creativity that I hope or that I strive to bring out in participants. And so when she was talking about having participants who have used different tools and are thinking through for themselves how they're going to create this end goal product of a, of a mallet, uh, I liked that the thought progression and the creativity and the skills that they had to put all together to hopefully achieve that goal. <laughs> <laughs>